Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast The Brief. It's our weekly show about politics. Today, I am just me. I'm just hosting today. Carrie Eleveld is still on maternity leave. She has a new baby boy at home. She'll be back next week. So I'm excited about that. We have so much to talk about. I mean, she's just, I'm sure she's, she's dying seeing so much happen politically and, and, uh, and not being working, quote unquote, to talk about and write about those issues that she loves to write about. So it's going to be fun when she gets back here. So that's next week. But this week, Joining me today is Steve Singeiser. He is a contributing editor at, uh, contributing writer at Daily Coast Elections. He is a encyclopedic expert on all things election. And you know what? We got, we got quite the election coming up here. Conventional wisdom says that the party out of power loses seats in a midterm election. And, you know, the average is like over 30 seats in the House. Because the president never can deliver what the president promises. It's impossible. Our system is broken in that way. So normally we'd be talking about how many seats are Democrats going to lose. But Steve, welcome. Thanks for joining us. And this is not a typical midterm election, is it, Steve? No. And the more evidence we see from actual elections that are being conducted, the more evidence there is that this is not a normal year. In a normal year, the Democrats don't win a seat in the United States Congress that they have not held since before I was born. And if you see the gray in the beard, that was a while ago. All right. That was 50 years ago that Democrats were the representatives in the U S house for Alaska. Well, that just happened last week. Democrats don't hold on to 50, 50 seats like they did in New York 19. So I, I say it in our live blog coverage all the time. This sure doesn't, you know, a red wave year doesn't look like this. It doesn't look like Democrats holding 50-50 seats. It doesn't look like them gaining seats that they have not seen in a half century. So we know what the conventional wisdom is, and I think everyone mentally was kind of prepared for that to happen this time around, particularly with President Biden's poll numbers earlier in the year. But, boy, it sure isn't shaping up like that. Yeah, you know, there's there's this um, uh, Biden's numbers are mid to high 30s. You know, some polling now has them in the mid 40s. So, you know, again, conventional wisdom is like, okay, if it's a referendum on the president and the president is sitting at like just a little bit above a third approval rating, maybe it's not going to be a good year. And for sure, the polling on key Senate races has been very favorable to to our side. Right. But so a lot of people will say. Uh, well, yeah, but the polling and the polling was wrong in 2016 and the polling was wrong in 2020. Uh, and of course, there's this idea of what I call the nihilistic Trump voter who won't answer a fo- phone and talk to pollsters. So it, it it makes sense in hindsight. But see what you talked about. We're not talking about polls like the evidence is actually in elections, like actual elections. And so and it's we had this New York 19th race two or three weeks, three weeks ago that you just talked about. Um, that's a rural upstate New York district, has some liberal hotspots in Woodstock and uh, New Paltz, which is a college town and some places like that. But otherwise, you know, very rural district, 50-50. And the best Republican candidate that they could have recruited, a former statewide gubernatorial candidate who won that district in 2018, 
And also, Republicans spent what, like over a million dollars on the seat? And how much did Democrats spend? Not a whole lot, if any. Yeah. They didn't buy it. I mean, they didn't bite on it. And they did the same thing in Texas, where everyone made a big deal about the Texas seat that the Republicans picked up in the spring. They didn't bite on either one because those districts aren't going to be there in November. The two candidates running, Pat Ryan for the Democrats and Mark Molinaro for the Republicans, will be running in two separate districts come November in the 18th and 19th. So the Democratic committees and some people criticized them for this when it looked like Ryan might lose. Uh, they didn't bite because it was a rental for a couple months. And, and, the, the and Dem Democrats have the majority, right? It would not have impacted the majority or any commit exactly. anything of. Uh, and it's really it's election season. So they're not even doing anything in Congress. Right. So really right. a rental is the right word. It's just a warm body to fill the seat until the new Congress convenes. Sure. And then the Democrat, of course, winds up winning it anyway. And by a margin slightly larger than Biden won it in 2020. And it just goes again to the point, if it's a red wave year, if it's a traditional first midterm, it doesn't look like this. It, you would see Democrats hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging excuse me, seats like that. And you certainly wouldn't see them being competitive in, in a state like Alaska or a district like the Nebraska 1st District. Yeah, tell us uh, about that. Tell okay, us a little so bit more about that district. That was back in June. Uh, special election because Jeff Fortenberry, the previous incumbent, found himself afoul of the law, as <laughs> seems to happen sometimes with Republican incumbents. I don't but uh, Democrats and Republicans ran the candidates that they're going to be running in November. And it wound up being very close. I think 50, it wound up 52-48 or 53-47. But that's a Trump plus 10 or 11 district that actually is going to get slightly more blue uh, with their remaps. So because they're trying to make Nebraska. Yeah, that's not people think, oh, there is a you know, if you follow politics, you think, oh, that must be the really sort of competitive Nebraska district that Joe Biden won and Obama won one of his years because Nebraska splits its its electoral votes by congressional district. So you think, oh, it must have been that really competitive district. But it wasn't. No, it wasn't. And I think there's a key point in that, which is the reason why the Democrat in that race was as close as she was, was she housed the Republican in Lancaster County. Now, Lancaster County is full of college-educated, it's where Lincoln is, full of college-educated voters, but college-educated voters that typically break closer to 50-50. It's still a, it's a blue county, but a very light blue county normally. It sure, it wasn't in June. It was 58-42, something on that order. So it was, was pretty one-sided. And so you look at that, and then you look at the the exurban parts of New York. You look at Anchorage, Alaska in last week's election. Mary Peltola may have won the state by two points, but she won the city of Anchorage by close to 20. So you start to see these urban and suburban areas where there are an ample amount of college-educated voters, and Democrats are doing extremely well there. So this is, um, this is a sort of a theme that I've had for a while, is that the country is very polarized People's opinions don't change. Most groups are locked in. So it's not like you can talk to a Trump voter and convince them to be a, a Biden voter and vice versa, right? I mean, things are pretty locked in. But there's one swing demographic, and that's college-educated suburban white women. We've seen some polling in recent, in the last couple of weeks, that one suggests that women are are really those, those college-educated, not even college, I think this poll, Wall Street Journal poll, was suburban white women hmm. are swinging dramatically, like two to one to the Democrats. And then I think it was a Fox News poll that had college-educated white men 
in suburbia starting to to even out now you know men we know men are are heavily republican leaning and white men particularly right leaning but even if you chip into that advantage i mean you're starting to like pull out some real potential margins in those suburban districts and it really dramatically changes the equation right absolutely and i i think a lot of that could be owed to dobbs but more importantly, I think what it's so just really quick, Steve. Uh, Dobbs is the decision that that overturned Roe v. Wade, so it's the abortion decision that has really upended this entire election. Okay, go right. on. Sorry, I should have defined my terms there. But look, at the end of the day, one of the things that Republicans have kind of used as an article of faith, the kind of Republicans that try to appeal to suburban voters, is look, even if the Supreme Court does this, it's not like the legislatures are going to go off the rails. And what happened immediately after the case came through? Republican legislatures went completely off the damn rails. And so a lot of suburban voters who are not doctrinally conservative are sitting there saying, okay, we were told that they would kind of use a deft hand once they had the ability to regulate abortion at the state level. And that hasn't happened. So all of a sudden you get this situation. There was just a survey out today that I thought was really interesting of voters who slightly disapprove of Joe Biden. Democrats are actually winning that demographic. That's extraordinary. <laughs> it is. The thing is, look, someone who strongly approves of Joe Biden is never voting for him. That is a hardcore partisan. But the people who softly disapprove of Biden are most likely exactly these people we're talking about. These suburban, college-educated white voters who split pretty close to 50-50 in 2020 because even though they didn't particularly like or trust Donald Trump, Boy, they've been rep voting Republican pretty much since the earth cooled, and it's tough mm -hmm. to change those kind of patterns. Well, this Dobbs decision, the abortion decision, coupled with how the state legislatures have reacted to it, seems to have put enough doubt in their mind that they're willing to give this a shot, this voting Democrat thing. Now, of course, we know from the numbers from 2016 to 2020, a lot of voters had already started to do that. Orange County went blue twice. In uh, California. And, oh, yeah. Orange County, California. Well, Orange County, Florida, too. But yeah, Orange County, California, which... Living a stone's throw from there, I can tell you in my youth, that was considered the rock-ribbed, irremovable Republican core of the state yeah. of California. It's, and it's, it's Reagan's home territory, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So there are a lot of voters there that are people who 20 years ago would have been moderate Republicans who don't see a lot to support in the 2022 Republican Party. Yeah, so... Obviously, last year was a whole different picture, right? 2000, what was it, 21, mid-midterm, mid, off-year elections, I guess is what. Uh, we, had, we had statewide elections in, in uh, New Jersey, Virginia, maybe elsewhere. But those two were sort of really, really kind of put the fear of God into Democrats, right? Because Democrats got swept out of office in all the statewide elected positions in the legislature in Virginia. And we almost lost New Jersey, which is obviously supposed, you know, it's a safe blue state. And the, our governor, um, incumbent governor, which already even have advantages, barely held on. So what is the difference between 2019 and 2020? And, and obviously abortion is an issue and Donald Trump, you know, and his crimes are an issue. But what systematically has shifted from 19 to 20? Well, I think for one thing, in the wake of Trump, the Trump voters were still energized. The Democratic voters were, I don't want to say depressed, but it's kind of like the dog that caught the car, right? They got the presidency. They got Trump out of there. So there's a little bit of complacency that builds in that often does spark these midterm or, or off-year problems. 
Uh, it did not help in Virginia that that the press fell in love with Glenn Youngkin and made him up to be this grand moderate, you know, the, the anti-Trump, the post-partisan Republican, which he never was any of those things, but they desperately needed to balance their karma after, you know, Trump by saying, oh, see, they're not all like that. Well, he was, but that's, he got fawning coverage and it paid off. What's changed this year is a few things. I, I think Dobbs does matter because there is no such thing as a complacent Democrat anymore. And they're, you know, climbing, they'll climb over a fence to go to the polls now where last year they might not have. Uh, I don't think it has also helped that Trump has not allowed himself to get out of the news. Uh, it's funny to watch Republicans who cannot stop saying, well, this party's past Trump now and they're trying to prop up Ron DeSantis as the great <laughs> hope and whatnot. But Trump simply refuses to let himself yeah, out of the limelight. He, he's, he's backed candidates that wind up being disasters, Herschel Walker in Georgia, Mehmet Oz in, in Pennsylvania, and uh, J.D. Vance in, Ohio. in Pennsylvania. So, I mean, right. there's plenty of examples. And he holds these rallies, and I'm sure if I was a Republican strategist, I would just be beside myself, but they're not going to get him off the stage. Uh, and so I think every time he speaks up or every time there's a new headline, it's a reminder of that. Notice no one tried to stop that guy in the Republican Party. And that costs the party a little bit of credibility. Yeah, no, it's funny that uh, I just saw an announcement of a Trump rally in Ohio. And he has a special, very special guest, J.D. Vance. Really should be the other way around. J.D. Vance is the one who's running for, re for election in Ohio in a contested Senate seat in a state that should not be competitive. And Trump should be his special guest. Like Trump should come in to support J.D. Vance. And... Trump can't do that, right? He's got to have the spotlight. It's got to be his show. We've seen in rallies where he calls up the candidate that's running locally and insults him, negs him somehow. <laughs> so uh, it is actually quite dramatic. And, and you're absolutely right. One of the, in both Virginia and New Jersey, the Republicans did a masterful, masterful job of keeping Donald Trump out. And I still don't know how they pulled that trick off because from all indications, Trump seemed to want to at least go to Virginia. And um, but we all knew he wasn't going to be kept off the stage this year. I mean, that was that was a given. And so, yeah, between that and and the abortion decision, Dobbs, obviously, it creates a, a dramatically different environment. And But, Steve, it's taken a while for the political media press establishment to catch on. I mean, even a few weeks ago, maybe maybe not that. But a couple of months ago, Democrats were still acting like the avalanche, the red avalanche was coming. It's amazing how hard it's been for them to discard that that conventional wisdom that looked dated earlier i think everyone fell in love with the i'm not fell in love that may be too strong a term but everyone sort of played the conventional wisdom and then as evidence began to mount to the contrary it was making the evidence fit the conventional wisdom rather than the other you know oh well what this really means my favorite of them all marcos i have to say was a couple weeks ago when uh, Pat Ryan uh, was confirmed as the winner in New York, one I think it was Rick Klein of ABC News put, you know, Democrats <laughs> yeah. picked up a crucial race ahead of what's likely to be a dismal fall. Well, wait a second. <laughs> if, they picked, if they just won this race, how? why are we so certain it's going to be a dismal fall, dude? Uh, I don't know what he put after Peltola beat Palin. Maybe he said the same thing. But one of the things that's happened, I think, and this is in some ways to the benefit of the Democrats, is the press has made the expectations game ridiculous. They're still in the mode of, oh, it's nice they won this race. They found a way to qualify 
every race. We win Alaska's yeah. large asterisk. Yeah, it's got to be because of Palin. Okay, because you're running so much better candidates in Pennsylvania and Georgia <laughs> and in Ohio. Because you made a great point. That's Ohio. That's Trump won that state twice by eight nine points, and they had to throw last week was it twenty million dollars at JD Vance. Yeah, they took that money out of Arizona and out of uh, Alaska. Um, And Alaska makes sense that there's not a competitive Senate race in Alaska. But Arizona, theoretically, if they can't win Arizona, they're not taking that Senate. No. Or they have to hit an inside straight of plucking Georgia, somehow keeping Pennsylvania, which looks really remote. Like, I suppose it's possible, but it's it's. It's looking harder and harder with each passing week, and and Oz is doing nothing to help himself there. He's decided against any – talk about conventional wisdom. He's decided against any conventional wisdom that mocking the fact that his opponent had a stroke three months ago (laughs) is going to be his ticket to victory, as if that makes – as a doctor, no less. uh, That's nice manners, yeah. We'll we'll see how that works out for you. But, yeah, at this point, the press has kind of taken to this idea that that nothing's changed when yeah, besides the fact that we've seen actual elections that tell us something's changed, the polling has changed along with it. You're seeing more polls of generic ballots with Democrats in the lead than Democrats trailing. You didn't see that five months ago, six months ago. No. What you saw was Republicans leading in generic ballot polls by five points, seven points. Even in one case, I think it was a Quinnipiac poll at 10 points. And yeah. Quinnipiac last week had the Democrats up four. So something's happening. Now, am I saying the Democrats are bound to a larger majority? Not necessarily, because there's so many crosswinds here. What I'm saying, at least from my opinion, and it's just mine, is anybody who says conclusively it's a red wave election is out of their mind. There's no way with all these crosswinds right now that you can know that with certainty. So I think it's going to be a very close election cycle. I think it's going to be a very interesting election cycle. Some things that you don't expect to happen are going to happen, because... Look, something has happened. We don't know what it is. Another great example is the Kansas abortion vote. Yeah. It wasn't just that the abortion vote failed in Kansas. It's that it failed by a lot, by 18 points, and it failed with record turnout for a midterm primary. So, yeah, yeah almost What was it? Like 600,000 new registered voters in Kansas alone? It was, it was, I, I don't remember the exact number, but it was something just monumental and unbelievable. Right. And you see some of the data that the groups like Target Smart are putting out there where they're talking about new registrants and the numbers are staggering. What percentage of those new registrants are modeled as Democratic voters? What percentage of them are women? What percentage of them are young women? So half, half young people don't vote. Right. Statistically, obviously, some young people vote, but statistically, it's the least performing demographic. And right now, half of new registrations are in all the competitive states, half of young women, uh, sorry, half of the women registrations are under the age of 25. And even amongst men, it's around 40%. And they break two to one Democratic, generally speaking. And so even, you know, you usually look at voter registration, you think, okay, men are more likely to be Republican. This is just standard. But right now, the ones that are registering are people who were not participating and have been activated as allies because of, of Dobbs. I mean, it's something... Completely, yeah, no, it's it's unbelievable. I don't even and how Steve, how do you even poll those people? You know, we talk about how do you poll the nihilist Trump voter, and it's true. How do you poll these young twenty five and younger kids who 
aren't going to answer the phone to answer a pollster. They're, they're not going to be in any database of potential voters. A lot of voter screens will screen them out because a lot of pollsters will say, oh, well, you have to have voted in X number of elections to be a likely voter. I mean, how, and, and so, you, you know, yeah, Republicans have this, this untapped or unreachable core base, this Trumpist nihilist base. But we do now, too. Yeah, and the thing is, that's why I say anyone, anyone who's speaking with certainty on what's going to happen in this election is kidding themselves. You see a pollster like, and I use pollster very loosely, like Trafalgar, who comes out with very Republican rosy numbers and says, well, that's because we weigh in the fact that a lot of Republican voters won't answer the phone. They don't trust the media, da, da, da. Well, Marcus, you're spot on. They're probably not also reading the, reaching the 27-year-old who's never voted in the last nine years but is so ticked off of what's happened over the course of this year, not just with the Supreme Court but also in these state legislatures that are attacking LGBT people that are yeah. going after the, the, the trans stuff. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and they're going to vote. They're, they'll crawl over busted glass to vote, and they're not getting picked up in the polls either. So the question now becomes one of proportions. Yeah. Which group is going to come out in greater numbers – and that's why there's a lot of surprises. I do think, and I don't know this, I have not talked to any pollster about this, I do think after that happening in 16 and 20, to a much lesser extent, by the way, in either 18 or 19, that pollsters are kind of modeling, okay, we're probably missing some Trump voters. But are they modeling, hey, we know there's a lot of engaged, angry, young female voters, and they're not likely to be voting for Dr. Oz or for Greg Abbott or for Ron DeSantis. I don't know that they are, and I don't blame them for that because these are people who have never voted before. It defies all normal political parameters, but this seems like an election that's going to defy a whole lot of normal political parameters. Yeah, it's it's there's a lot of unknowns, and and I think that's a big sort of big takeaway of this conversation is that there's there's we can't we're not going to sit here and go like I think we're going to win, and we definitely aren't going to say we think we're going to lose. It's actually legitimately competitive, and it really is going to come down to the weight of who turns out and votes. Now, Steve, I find it really interesting that Mitch McConnell kind of crapped on his own candidates, right? So, you know, said it was a dig at Donald Trump, but basically said that candidate quality matters, right? That was his quote. But then you look at Wisconsin and Ron Johnson, the Republican, who has won twice before. So by all objective measures, is a good candidate. And he's one of the uh, uh, Republicans that is that is furthest behind right now. I think polling has him about five, six points behind the Democratic challenger, who, who's uh, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. So I actually don't think I mean, candidate quality obviously matters to a certain degree. But we keep coming back to like there's something else happening. And one of my sort of growing or operating theories is that Republicans have always had that single issue voter on evangelical abortion and the Second Amendment gun crowd, right? And they don't care what the economy is doing. They don't care who the candidate is. They don't care anything. They're going to turn out. They're going to vote and, you know, take the evangelicals. They may say they may not have supported Donald Trump in the primary because obviously he is everything that Christianity is against. <laughs> but once he got the nomination, they all fell in line, right? They were going to do whatever it took to, to get him elected. And, and I think we're starting to see that on our side. So no gas prices, inflation, who the candidate is. I don't think, I think there's a growing core on liberal, on the liberal base that's going to look at the issues of privacy. So abortion, uh, gay rights, trans rights, you know, that, that sort of subset. Um, 
and even it's smaller, but I think it's 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 there a a gun control like a, a gun control single issue voter, and so we've never had that kind of foundation before, right? I mean, we've never had somebody we could count on no matter what. No, and, and there's evidence in the polling of that where you see what's happened in the past, and I think you stated very well, is you've had conservative voters who have not necessarily loved everything about conservatism and certainly not loved some of the candidates who are willing to fall in line because they found the alternative to be completely untenable to them. Democrats have not always had that. What we've had instead is people who have found certain policy positions or certain candidates untenable, and they just no-show. Yeah. doesn't look like they're going to no-show, or at least they haven't yet. So... That becomes the question. And one great example of that in the polling data is young voters, right? That's one of the, I think it actually statistically is still the worst uh, age cohort for Joe Biden's approval. Young voters, yeah, really are irritated by Joe Biden. But when you look and see who they're voting for, who their intent to vote for in November is, it's heavily Democratic. So they're obviously not condemning the party to their personal dislike for the president who, and it's probably rooted in the fact that their biggest concern is they wish that the president was doing more stuff, yeah. uh, which, I mean, he's accomplished a lot. I give him a lot of credit for that. But to a young voter, I'm thinking my 21-year-old in the back of my head right now who is no great fan of Biden's because he should be doing this. He should be doing that. Just the whole wish list, right? And But guess what? When she votes in November, she's not voting for brian dolly here in california to be the california governor because she's mad at gavin newsom or mad at joe biden yeah yeah democrat and i think there are a lot of voters like that so the question becomes as we've said earlier is do they vote and the indications are they might and if they do then that is going to be a big issue for the republicans because that's a group that they were kind of counting on, especially in midterms they, they generally show up for presidential elections but midterms man you see that 18 to 29 ratio drop dramatically if it doesn't they got a problem. So we're coming to the close of the episode. So I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Steve, and I'm going to ask you to make a prediction about what is going to happen in November. And, and I'll give you some leeway. You can do a range. You can, you can be, you can be a little Lucy on, on that prediction. Okay. Uh, in the Senate, I'm going to say right now, if I'm a betting man, I'm voting Democrat to keep the Senate. And I think they could go up as high as 53 seats. Uh, I think they could also be as low as 49. Uh, I think the, the you really the, think 49 is possible. I think 49 is really here's why. Here's why I think okay. it's possible. I, I think Nevada could be a problem. That state really surprised me in 2020. I thought after 2018 and Sisolak had won easily and uh, Jackie Rosen had won pretty easily five, six, four, five. These six, are all six, Democrats. Yeah, these are all the Democrats. I'm sorry. Then we turn around 2020 and the margin's only two for Biden. That concerns me. I think they could lose that one, but I think they're pretty much a lot to pick up Pennsylvania, so those should weigh out. So then the question becomes Georgia. Now, on an intellectual level, I cannot fathom a state voting for Herschel Walker, but it's <laughs> Georgia. And there's a lot of conservative voters, particularly in North Georgia. So that, that one, I mean, it, a lot of races scare me. I'm, I'm in, by nature, that's my that, the anxiety level is always there in election years. But I'd say 49 to 53 is the, the likely range. So I'll just put it right in the middle and say 51. We pick up one. Okay. Um, in the House, oh boy. I think one thing, I think the predictions earlier in the year that the Republicans, I remember one very well known prognosticator saying even Biden plus 10 seats are in danger this year. Well, that ain't happening. <laughs> right. Sorry. That's, I mean, there, we may lose yeah, one. That, that means 
districts that Biden would have won 55-45 against Trump, right? So, no, that right. was never going to happen. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, you may see one or two go up because of candidate quality. But, no, it's not that kind. Of, it's clearly not that kind of year anymore. Could the Republicans pick up the House? They could only because the margins. They only have to pick up five seats. And they're in. So it's possible. Uh, and then redistricting very much favored them in some states like Florida. But I'd say right now, the thing that's going to be is, I'll, I'll make this prediction. We will not know who controls the House on election night. Ooh. Because there will be late-breaking you know, races that are very close. We know California with all the late votes that come in by mail. Uh, and all those Orange County Republicans sure. are going to be counting for weeks. Because God forbid, right. yeah. So I, uh, that'll be my prediction. I can't tell you who's going to win it because honestly, I don't know either. But I will say that the we will not know who won the House on election night. I, I will say that if you look at New York 19th as sort of a barometer, and that is, again, it's a 50-48 it's a Biden seat. So it is, it is uh, pretty even, slight lean Democratic. There are, there are 222 seats that are more blue than New York 19. And remember, we won it by almost, what, two and a half points, three points? Yeah. And so there's even a margin there. So that would push it out. So even if, if we could keep the the margins at, at what we saw in New York 19, we'd hold the House. If you look at other races, Alaska, you look at the Nebraska special election, really all the special elections since the Dobbs decision was leaked. Democrats are outperforming the Biden numbers by what, about five to six points. Yeah, it's very so, it's all Everyone has gone that direction. And New York 19th was the least overperformance. And again, it was the best Republican candidate they had probably in the entire country. And they outspent Democrats a million to zero. <laughs> and colleges weren't back in yet. Oh, and colleges weren't back in. So you didn't even have the full college vote. Correct. So it's, I, I'm, I am a lot more optimistic, understanding that we still have two months. And we saw how quickly things have shifted, even in the last month. Sure. So who the heck knows? But but uh, if nothing else, I think Steve and I totally agree. This thing is this thing is tight. Nobody's going to walk away with this, you know, with uh, big majorities in either chamber. Hopefully, Democrats have fifty-two seats in the House because that would allow them to eliminate the filibuster, and that would be like a massive victory. Um, but um, yeah, no, Steve, this is this is this is probably the most intellectually interesting election of my lifetime and it absolutely is the most important one based on just our protecting our democracy so agree more absolutely so, one, one last question steve you're you're a you're a high school teacher right you you work with um honor students and uh, what's the what and what's the feeling amongst your students when are they tuned in to the Dobbs decision in abortion in the election, or are they just kids and not little, being you kids? Know, it's funny, a little bit of both. I will say that my female students are more tied into that. Uh, you know, and that not surprising, right? Uh, you'd think that'd kind of go with the territory. But definitely there's still a bunch of, there's still high school students and, you know, life for them, the future is next week. But no, <laughs> my female students, several of them, who weren't particularly political, and I'd even go in my own household. Um, my younger, who is a senior, who's actually in my AP government class. I'm sure. <laughs> oh, well, that's a, yeah. I'm sure she's okay. about that. <laughs> uh, 
but my my 18 year old i'd never seen her post anything political on social media in her life she's just not a very political person and in the wake of the dobbs decision she does that a lot now so it kind of woke her up which uh that's the i mean it's a sample size of one but that's uh that was very much a pronounced shift so that is our show for today. Thank you, Steve, for joining us. Thanks to Walter for producing, Kara and uh, Paul, and everybody, and uh, Dorothy who worked behind the scenes to make this podcast happen. And thank you, the listener and the viewer, for fighting the good fight and doing what you're doing to protect our democracy. Everything's on the line. I know we always say this. It gets tiring sometimes. This is the most important election of our lifetime. They really have been. And this one isn't even about, oh, no, we're going to elect somebody who is going to be evil to immigrants and disenfranchised communities. We're talking the very fabric of our democracy is literally on the ballot with election deniers and people who, who want to destroy the machinery of our free election system. So your fight, your efforts are incredibly important. So honored to be fighting side by side to, to really bring this home. And uh, it really is a difference between expanding the Senate, getting Puerto Rico, maybe Washington, D.C., uh, eliminating partisan gerrymandering, uh, voting rights protections, or Donald Trump style nihilistic dystopian autocracy. I mean, this is this is the battle we face. And I wish I could be exaggerating. I wish this was all hyperbole, but it is not. This is real. So thank you all for the good fight. And uh, again, Carrie Ellavelt will be back from maternity leave next week. So we'll be excited to, to catch up with her and talk about one week closer to election. And, and Steve, as long as they're talking about Donald Trump and abortion, they're not talking about the economy, right? This is good. There you go. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.